I wish something good would happen. I know, and it will, I promise. It doesn't seem like it will, but it will. <laughs> This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 249 for the week of April 29th, 2019. That's a lot of nines. I am Elevated Train, David T. Cole, and I'm here with poignant final text, Sarah D. Bunting. Forget the milk, but don't forget me! Fascinator enthusiast, Tara Ariano. Totally normal choice for a weeknight dinner. And fellow teacher with an unrequited crush, John Ramos. Do you come with a coffee? <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Extra Hot Great, episode 249. I can't believe it, but believe this. Uh, John Ramos has joined the panel this week. Welcome back, John. 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 Thank you. Yay! There it is. It's um, been a minute. John has uh, <laughs> agreed to discuss with us the latest uh, prestige limited series. It is called The Red Line. Oh, uh, sorry. Just before you continue, that reminds me. Let the wide stick give you the edge. Speed stick, super dry, antiperspirant. The Red Line. The red line. <laughs> hmm. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. I, um, I would have expected that to not meet your rigid scansion requirements. The Red Line. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> okay. You're the boss. Uh, so this is a series that follows the lives of three uh, Chicago families living along the red line of Chicago's elevated train. So that's that. Uh, I keep calling it the thin red line in my head. It's it's not that. Yeah, same. <laughs> um, these families uh, and their stories end up intersecting uh, in the wake of a mistaken uh, police shooting of an African-American doctor by a white cop. Executive producers include uh, Ava DuVernay and Greg Berlanti. Fans include not me? No. <laughs> or the rest of the panel? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just kept feeling like I was waiting for it to start. I think this is a, like well-meaning, but too careful and ultimately airless exploration of what this story would turn into that is not the best acted by some people. There's a lot of acting. It's just not all <laughs> good. Um, John, what was your, what was your take on that? How many episodes have you watched and what was your take on what you did see? Um, yeah, it was a bit of a journey. <laughs> um, the pilot was, very piloty on top of everything on top of everything that you said. So I was like, wow, I have to watch another one. <laughs> That's part of the assignment. Uh, <laughs> the second, the second one I thought was better in the way that, you know, most second episodes are they, the actors are a little bit more comfortable with their characters. I think, you know, the direction was maybe a little bit more assured because they're not trying to do everything necessarily. Um, I did take a minute and just reflect afterward and be like, well, everyone in the main cast almost is a person of color or a gay person. And I want to give this network credit for doing that, even if it's not the, you know, and obviously some of the, some of the executive producer pull behind it is, is probably why. Um, so I did want to grade it on a little bit more of a curve and I did actually go ahead and watch episode three. And that was certainly 
easily the best one of the of the three. I, oh, I would okay. I would imagine that no one else got that far, but nope. I decided to get <laughs> I decided to give it a shot. Um, that said, I do not have plans to watch any further. Um, did anyone watch the Chicago Code? Because I feel like that was a that was a that was a different tone for sure. But I feel like that show was unfortunately canceled after one season, and I felt like that got Chicago the world of Chicago, which is so rich, like really right. And there are a couple hints, hints of maybe going down that road here, but I'm not going to stay around to find out. I don't know, but that's, that's, I don't have much else to say about it. It's a hard show to say much about the actual show because it's sort of, for me, that unsatisfying 2019 network show that wants to reach for lofty goals, but is hampered by the fact that it is, on network television i'm guessing given the pedigree of the creators behind it i gotta guess that this is not the show that they wanted to broadcast to us it feels very muted very diluted to me it feels like a lot of compromises were made yes Yeah, yeah that too this is a show that should be about the institution of law enforcement that is about race relations and same-sex couples in society now and it just like wants to walk the fence along everything all the time or vacillate between things like well it's this but sometimes it's not but like the sometimes it's not is often given the same weight as everything else what it usually is like it's one of those deals where they tend to want to give two sides of everything when sometimes you don't need two sides of everything or you just need To dismiss one side as being, you know, institutionally corrupt. Yeah. Yes, of course, you do have good cops out there that don't shoot people on a dime. But institutionally, there is a big problem with law enforcement in the United States. If you want to tell that story, you really do yourself a disservice if you're always weighting an institution's corruption against one person's reservations about that corruption. Yeah, and I think um, kind of related to that is like there's almost an over economy of characters, the way everyone's lives are so tangled and they're trying to address so many different things at once, like just for, you know, for people who haven't watched it, which is probably everyone. Um, <laughs> the guy who gets shot is is his husband is played by Noah Wiley and they have a, an African-American adopted daughter who then turns out. Her mother is running for alderman and she's supposed to be taking on the police. And, you know, she's she's part of this new group of politicians who's trying to clean up Chicago. But then she's also dragged into this family drama that's just like it's it's too much for one character to put on one character in this number of episodes, I feel like. And it is a limited series, so maybe that's why they tried it this way. But I, I, I felt like maybe, maybe it's the, maybe it's just that the actor, that particular actor wasn't up to it, but I, I would have been, I would have been happier exploring these themes among different characters rather than like everyone trying to do everything at once. And, you know, as, as mentioned before, then you get all the acting too. Or just so, explore the yeah. characters instead of setting it up as like, unfortunately, to Dave's point, a lot of the scenes felt like a debate club mm-hmm. outline. Yeah. That's like, let's explore both sides of this. Um, and then, I mean, it's an unfortunate bit of casting. Like, I don't, you know, I don't mind this actor and I don't think he's like uncapable. But um, when you have the cop who did the shooting played by the guy who played Dale Stuckey on SVU, like, yeah. if, you, <laughs> if you know who that is, you're like, it's Noel Fisher. 
Yeah, that's maybe not the like, you know, SVU tech goes nuts and kidnaps uh, a member of the squad. Like it's maybe not the, you know, the referent that you want on the screen. But I I just felt like some of the actors were, um, as John said, tasked with this extremely like burdensome amount of plot of intersecting plot and um, tasked with dialogue that tried to avoid abstractions, but did not always succeed, particularly in the first episode. And then she's in scenes with Regina Taylor, like give her Mm -hmm. a break. (laughs) It's just not fair to her. Well, speaking of overburdening the actors, like the, the girl that plays the teenage adopted daughter who is just getting over her father being murdered is given like this big speech about identity politics, like, mm-hmm. like straight out of an essay. First of all, no kid talks like that. But second of all, that's a lot to lay on a character from, you know, episode one or episode two. And for the actor as well, I would think, because it comes off pretty, you know, stated. Oh dear. There's work um, to be done. For me, the interesting part is like, where is actually in in today's television ecosystem where we have so many options now from network TV to IP TV to premium cable and paid cable and everything like what's the white space for television networks now? Because like this show, like mission statement would have been better served somewhere where the creators had more agency like Netflix or something like that. Like if this was. From day one, something that they could have built up on Netflix, I bet it would have been a very different show. Or even on the CW where there's like a little less oversight and a little less like teachable moment feeling around, for example, non-binary characters. Like I just feel like that would have been a lot more naturalistic anywhere besides like a traditional network. Totally agree. Well, especially CBS, <laughs> the grayest of all. Yeah. <laughs> the problem with that, too, is that it's as Dave mentioned in the last episode, we've been watching the good fight from the beginning. Mm. And the good fight is also, well, it's set in Chicago. We all know it does not film there. But they <laughs> the the central law firm, like the first episode of that show is about about um, suing the Chicago Police Department over a wrongful shooting like this is the bread and butter of that show and it handles it so much better um and so much more smartly and with so much more empathy and so in such a way that doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it's just got a checklist and it's going down it like the the way that they've they've um stacked the deck with this shooting like it's not a character who anyone is there's ever going to be a whiff of like, well, he was no angel, like is so often the narrative in these real shootings, like, you know, Eric Garner was selling Lucy's. OK, did he deserve to get choked to death? Probably not. Like this guy is a doctor who is black, but like it was in the process of trying to help someone who had just been assaulted in a mugging. And like so there, there's just there's no question of like any kind of ambiguity about how this would be portrayed. It just feels like such a cheat. I don't know. Well-meaning, but like the the best and most um, exciting part of the show for me was uh, the daughter's friends, Luke at the benefit, mm, like yeah. red tuxedo yep. jacket, <laughs> black lipstick. Like, can we just get a spinoff immediately right now of this character? Because this is <laughs> just way more interesting, despite the fact 
that they were given a bunch of very stagey, like, I mean, I assume we all saw the headline about like the producers of the green book basically being like, this was, this movie was for old white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's that character felt like, again, it's on CBS, like regular broadcast. This whole show. Never mind. This is, for, yeah, this is for old folks to te- teach them how to think right i don't know uh doing a poor job if that's their mission <laughs> yeah i wish i could have hated you know hated its intentions more even because of that the actor that they cast there is non-binary which you know is a big deal i think for a network but yeah the show you know then it's not that it's just not that good that's that's the problem but oh and the other thing i really hated was how uh you know i know he's under some pressure but uh Noah Wiley's character, like his whole handling the adoption of his fe- daughter's feelings of adoption. I was just like, that's just not how you behave in any way no. at all. No. Like, and who has thought that that's how you behave for the last 10 years? That's just right. No. Anyone These would are. know that. That was, that was She's bad. 17. Yeah. Like, it's not like, I mean, yes, there was some correcting again, like this, you know, people in a debate correcting of like the language mm, that you use and everyone totally. was doing it of like, that's not your mom. You're Benny's mom. Like, blah, blah. We, yeah, we know. But, you know, when a 17 year old who's like about to turn 18 and be able to control all this herself comes to you and says, I just need you to sign a form like being a good dad is not saying, no, you're right. That was very absurd and and not in keeping with all of the other wokeness that we had been given to understand about his character. <laughs> like, right. And yeah. as you said, I mean, she she could literally do this herself, like practically tomorrow. Like, wh- yeah. what are the stakes in, 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 in drawing this line at this point? It just made no sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But- yeah. It's only to prompt that you know orchesis event that's like you know on the on the con side your your time is because like the (laughs) clock is running on your time like all right and while i'm up the on the nose music cues eh -eh. Mm -hmm. too much (laughs) yeah i will give credit to the one truthful moment that i thought was handled well when the daughter jira goes back to school after like taking a whole term off and like this other girl in her class is trying to like mooch mooch onto her tragedy by being like, you can eat this kid. Mm-hmm. She clearly doesn't know at all, like trying to just, you know, smarm up to her and get her to open <laughs> up and stuff. Like I thought that was very true to the high school experience. I thought that was, that was a, a smart detail to include, but like touches like that are so rare and the rest of it just feels like such homework and in a totally unenjoyable way. Yeah. So we're drawing, a red line. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to go around the dial. First stop, Tara Ariano. Well, if you have been on Twitter the last week, you have seen me and every other person who likes comedy raving psychotically about a show on Netflix called I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. We are lovers of Tim Robinson on the show. Uh, when we uh, covered Detroiters last year with Josh Gondelman, he brought us the episode of The Characters starring Tim Robinson for the canon, which, of course, we inducted because so it was amazing. Um, this Detroiters, alas, has been canceled, but we have the show instead. The only knock I have on it is that every episode is short. Like, I think they're all under 20 minutes and there's only six of them. But it is super good. We watched it too fast, I'm going to say. We're going to need to rewatch <laughs> yeah. it again, um, like, next week. But 
in order to not try and squeeze all of the comedy out of it, I just uh, present to you this representative clip of the this is the second sketch of the first episode. Dave, proceed. Have you been the victim of unfair treatment by a business or a corporation? Has this ever happened to you? You bought a house that was not disclosed to you that there was a termite infestation in the walls and in the moldings. So you have to take it upon yourself to call your own termite extermination company. But when the guys show up, they immediately ask if they can use your bathroom. Then for over two hours, they take turns going in and out of there, taking huge mud pies and over flushing. Then they go in there together and hear a bunch of scrounging around and then you hear a bunch of yelling and one of them is standing in the bathroom doorway shouting at you and his friend's foot stuck in the toilet and he says help him you gotta help him and when you go in there to help him he just pulls it out easily and laughs because his foot wasn't stuck it wasn't stuck at all he was just faking it and then they get really serious they say it's turbo time and they both start running around the house as fast as they can and jumping over the couches but when you try and jump in they yell at you and they say you're not part of the turbo team don't run! You don't run with us! We're the ones who run! Until you're part of this turbo team, walk slowly! So you go lay down the beat by yourself and read your art books, but then the next day you went into the bathroom and it looked like the hole in your toilet had shrunk? He said, how could that be? There's no way they could have shrunk the toilet. But then you saw in the trash a receipt from Home Depot for a toilet the exact same size as yours, but with a joke hole that's just for farts. They replaced your real toilet with a fart toilet, and now you can't take a dump in your house because your toilet can't suck them down and you feel sick to your stomach? Has that ever happened to you? Call me right now, please. <laughs> <laughs> He's the best screamer He's in a good one. TV. He's, yeah. He's very good. I mean, I, I hesitate to say anyone can really touch the hem of Bob Odenkirk's garment in terms of comedy screaming, but Tim Robinson is a is an excellent uh, heir apparent. I absolutely agree. Bob Odenkirk is for, for your explosive immediate ones, and yes. Tim Robinson is the sustained anger. Mm. <laughs> That's yes. really funny, too, because we've all heard, like, you know, the thing where it starts funny and then it goes on for a while and it's not funny and then it comes back around to funny again. But, <laughs> yeah. but to do that while yelling at the top of your lungs the entire time, that is impressive. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's a good example of the kind of nonsense that you will find in this show. I highly, highly recommend it. As I said, it is on Netflix. Please, everyone watch it five times so that they make a second season because this first one was definitely not enough. Um, and for my plug, I uh, last week we mentioned that... Um, the fifth episode of the season of Barry was an all-timer. That episode has now aired. And I wrote about it for Decider um, in a very silly way that I won't describe in too much detail, except that it's um, it's it's <laughs> tips for success and self-improvement as uh, displayed through gifts of the opponents that Barry is facing in this episode. Um, please go watch that episode because it's really, really good. And then go read my post because uh, we will have a link in the show notes. Mr. John Ramos. All right. Well, really quick as an intro, I wanted to just plug my uh, my favorite Departed uh, Enlisted, which I rewatched recently. And the reason I rewatched it is because it's the only place you can still see Lori Laughlin. Oh. <laughs> in oh. Season finale. So if that's your jam, check it out. Uh, <laughs> but my main one is High Maintenance, um, which yeah. recently wrapped up its third season and which I, I waited to watch until the whole thing had aired. Um, I never thought I'd say this, but I did not much care for it. Um, mm. 
the thing that I loved about this show is really the um, the unexpected humanity of it and the feeling it inspired that maybe life could surprise you in good ways. And this really was not that a lot of the way. Um, I was warned off the uh, the scene Tara covered uh, recently with a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. Won't go into that again. But mm-hmm. even the rest of that episode was super unpleasant to watch, I thought. And yeah. Some of the rest of it just felt like quirk for quirk's sake, like the girl who kept exposing her left one. Um, you know, we didn't really get into that character, so to speak, you know, well, except for that. But um, and I think in the end, maybe there was just too much focus on the guy, the guy's life, because he is in it a lot more, you know, as far as what's happening to him rather than him, you know, just interacting with other characters. And maybe that left him less room for it to depict his empathy for other people, which, you know, was, was kind of the way in to me caring about, about those other people. Um, I don't know, but I will say that the finale, um, in the finale, the guy who has spent a fair amount of time in the suburbs kind of falls in love with New York again, um, in this wonderful closing montage. And I really did love that episode. So yeah. I have hopes that it will be, you know, back to form in the next season, but I was a bit disappointed. Yeah, I'm curious about the timeline of when they wrote that, because I know season two came out right after the couple who created it together, one of whom is the guy who plays the guy, Ben Stiller, and his wife, uh, ex-wife, Katya Blickfeld. They broke up. So I wonder if, like, those episodes Uh, were written when they were still together and this is... This is after, I mean, I hate to psychoanalyze it, but I would be curious to know what that timeline was. I also Mm -hmm. did see, uh, I saw an interview with him with Ben Sinclair where he said, you know, now that they have a real writer's room and they're under a little bit more time pressure, it's not as, you know, he had to, he had to make his peace with like, not every episode being like maybe exactly what he wanted or quite as good as he wanted. So, you know, there's that too, but Mm -hmm. hopefully creatively it'll be a little bit better uh, next season. Mm -hmm. Um, And for my plug, I don't really have anything right now, but I wanted to throw a shout out to uh, Mark and Sarah talk about songs. uh, Sarah's podcast, especially since uh, our agents are in talks for me to reappear on the show (laughs) at some point. Um, Kidding aside, uh, I think I will probably be on it sometime later this year doing a, an album that I will not spoil, but Ooh. I'm super excited about it. I've wanted to do it for a long time. So I'm looking forward so, to that. I hope you live through this experience. Oh. <laughs> Spoiler. L- little hint there. <laughs> it's like months away. <laughs> Sarah Um. Okay, so... Let's uh, drag the quality of what we're talking about uh, back down to basic cable levels with Double Shot at Love with DJ Pauly D and Vinny. Um, it is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Jersey Shore's Pauly and Vinny uh, are looking for love. So it's like the Jersey Shore meets The Bachelor. Um, it, they're like, there are pranks. There are like, they have the it's the bachelor. So they have all of the like bachelor things like here's an activity, except the activity is that they have to like DJ or do DJ patter instead of whatever fake power powder puff sportsy thing they would do on the bachelor. It's something Jersey. E. Um, if you like the Jersey shore and you find Polly D and Vinny's bromance charming, you will enjoy this. Um, 
if you like The Bachelor but think that they need to show more footage of people getting extremely drunk and Ooh. or hostile on the first night, oh you will enjoy this. Um, if you like extremely short dresses and budge-looking hair extensions, <laughs> you will enjoy this. Um, I like these guys, and the show is like, you obviously do not have to pay close attention to it. I do enjoy the fact that the kiss-off line, um, if you if the girls are asked to stay, it's, you know, will you give me, will you put your number in my phone? And if they're asked <laughs> to leave, it's, your cab is here, which is a folly <laughs> line. So, um I was urged to watch this by my friend and fellow Jersey Shore fan, Lori. And uh, so far, it's really fun. I'm a couple episodes behind, but apparently some castmates are going to show up to uh, advise the gents on their love interests. Um, it also has an I want to marry Harry vibe. If anyone decides to remember <laughs> that, okay. that wouldn't necessarily sound like a good thing. But I, I kind of loved that show as a social experiment and also qua show and for megan's many faces so uh yeah double shot at love with dj Polly d and Vinny, possibly the longest show name that we've had on the show in a while also so give it a look um uh speaking of shows i was a guest on the podcast crime writers on it was a lot of fun. I talked about the disappearance of Madeline McCann. And uh, thanks to the diligent efforts of the Crime Writers on um, PR team, my Blotter Presents Twitter follower count has finally been bumped off of 666 no, <laughs> no. for like two weeks. So if for no other reason, um, give Blotter Presents a follow and give Crime Writers on a listen. It was really a lot of fun. I love that podcast and it was a delight and honor to be on it. This extra credit topic comes to us from CG, who presented the Black and Blue episode of Homicide that we covered a couple of weeks ago. It is titled The Showrunner in the High Castle, and CG writes, With The Handmaid's Tale taking home some big award halls, the man in the High Castle finding enough of an audience to get a fourth season, and political events generally being what they are, it felt a year or two ago like we might be on the verge of a big moment for similarly styled alternate history slash alternate reality slash dystopian present slash dystopian near future shows. But since that moment never really materialized, now we're counting on you. Take an event in history, recent or not, a war, an assassination that did or didn't happen, an election, whatever you like, where something went differently in your fictional world than it did in the reality we know – and create your own Handmaid's Tale slash High Castle style alternate reality series. Give us the premise and title of the show and ideal casting choices for your main characters. And feel free to recommend some ideas for writers, directors, and other creatives as well. I'll go first. Wow, this was hard. Yeah. This was real hard, CG. Um, it was. I I decided to not go with Apartheid Never Ends in South Africa because white supremacists would like it too much. Mm -hmm. I decided against Bill Clinton gets away with sexually harassing Monica Lewinsky because he basically has at this Did. point in history. Yeah. Um, it's also not to be melodramatic, hard to imagine a dystopia given that the timeline we're in is pretty dark already. So I'm going to cheat um, and go with, uh, since he said our, you know, our current events. 
uh, go with an event that we are told is going to happen in 2019, which is the TV show The Running Man. Of course, we all remember the movie version with Arnold Schwarzenegger adapted from the Stephen King novel. Um it is set in 2019, um, and I imagine this is an anthology series about the story of each convict sentenced to participate on the show. Basically, it's it's that's the premise of the. It's a game show where uh, you can you can try to compete for your freedom to get out of your incarceration, uh, but that's not actually how it goes. Spoiler. Um, so the you know it could sort of follow this model and do a a Twilight Zone kind of thing where it's commenting on current events by through this dystopia where like what is a crime in this world, you know, is an extrapolation of what is being frowned upon or getting cracked down on in our reality, um, and then build to a series finale two parter where Ben Richards, who is the Arnold Schwarzenegger character from the movie, shows up um, and kind of blows the whole thing wide open and. Anyone could get stunt cast in this since each episode would be a one-off with the only constant the whole way through the through being the host of the show within the show, Damon Killian. And you could format it so that Killian never actually like directly interacts with the characters that you're covering in the episode so that the person that you cast as the host could potentially just shoot all of their scenes in a day and do it as a lark and therefore be a really big movie star potentially. Um, and the character in the movie was played by Richard Dawson. In this version, uh, I would cast someone equally smarmy and faintly creepy. That's right, Robert Downey Jr. John. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I really struggled with this. I have to admit, I don't have too much, but here's my premise Bill Clinton has been convicted following his impeachment, and Al Gore has Ooh. been elevated to, to president. With the American electorate disillusioned, Gore's political opponents cynically weaponized morality against him, forcing him to walk a tightrope of moral rectitude while still remaining true to democratic ideas, ideals. As such, he relies on his wife Tippers, played by Laura Linney, clean public image. Uh, pluses to the show. Gives us a roadmap for impeachment. <laughs> uh, exposes GOP dirty tricks. Uh, vehicle for Laura Linney to be the not really shadow lead of the show. And it gives me a chance to cast the only person I would ever want to play Al Gore. And that is history's greatest acting robot, David Duchovny. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And the show That's is really the good. Point. <laughs> Sarah. <clears throat> uh, I'm glad that I wasn't the only one who had President Gore cast him differently, though. Okay. Following 9-11. Out of an abundance of caution, President Al Gore, Chris Cooper, ordered the entire city evacuated and quarantined a la Chernobyl to protect its citizens from environmental hazards at Ground Zero. Most were relocated to or around Burden Hand, Pennsylvania, Amish country, and the locals did their best to accommodate the English city folk. The adjustment was harder for some than others and flashbacks to Billy Porter's character, Jamie, trying to put the rum and the ah back in rum springa. <laughs> will be hell awkward, obviously, but a handful of New Yorkers really took to the straightened life, including university professor Sig Johansson, still in Skarsgård. But not every Gothamite had consented to leave the city, and a few dozen rebellious communities still make their way among the rapidly decaying bones of the once great city, warrior style, including former mayor Michael Bloomberg, who, thanks to the chemicals at Ground Zero, is aging in reverse, which is why he's played by Rob Richard Code Benedict and not himself, and Sig Johansson's son Jonah, Alexander Skarsgård, who finds himself accidentally at the head of a doomsday birding cult headquartered at the Unisphere. 
Now, 20 years after the attacks, the city is set to be demolished entirely on the whim of hologram president Mitch McConnell, played by Zoidberg from Futurama. Can AOC, Camilla Mendez of Riverdale, and her Bronx Raiders get the holdouts out before the collapse begins? Or does science, suppressed by the McConnell regime, suggest the city can actually be saved? That's Aquafina and John Noble as Drs. Cho and Frobisher Pym. From Ryan Murphy, Sam Esmail, and Jedi Tartakovsky, it's American Gotham. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm so glad you went last. <laughs> Not quite, Dave. No, yeah. <laughs> I just read this comic I thought could work really well as the groundwork of a limited series, sort of like the Night Manager or something like that. The comic is called The Last Days of American Crime. Ooh. And unfortunately for me, I looked it up and they're actually doing something with it but not as a tv show it's like a netflix Mm. movie or something like that Mm. um but i'm gonna pitch it as a tv show anyways partly because the comic premise is very interesting and intriguing but the actual comic execution is kind of shitty so i thought maybe we can just like surgically pull out the beginning of this and the sliding doors element is what if the american government never stopped their mk ultra mind control stuff yes <laughs> yeah or what did if? they ever really guys air quotes slash tag conspiracy mm. the setting is that the u.s government actually has a workable mk ultra-esque project and the way they're going to deploy it is they use terrorist attacks and increasing crime to push through this measure that they will broadcast an mk ultra-esque signal that when somebody thinks about doing something they know is illegal, it'll stop them from doing it. So if you go to somebody's house with the intention of picking up a candlestick and sticking it in their head, uh, it'll stop you when you go to swing the candlestick into the head. You just won't be able to do it. Your brain won't send the proper signals. So in the comic book, the interesting part is because everybody knows this is coming on such and such a date, All the underground elements in America, they're all sort of gearing up for the one last big heist. It's sort of like a noir tale, and it follows this guy and some of the 'er ne'er-do-wells he's involved with. And it's sort of unsatisfying as a noir film. But I think the premise that they are going to do a heist as they flip the switch on the MK Ultra stuff, and it sort of incorporates elements of money heist, the show we were talking about a few months ago, because while all this is going on with the law, they're also finally converting the U.S. economy to a totally paperless, trackable, cashless oh. society. So there's all these things happening that's going to make people's unable to do naughty things. And so everybody is just trying to like really racing against the clock to figure out what they can do to sort of set themselves up for the next few years. I think if you took that premise of a race against time for all these sort of criminal elements that really want to do like a proper 70s style heist, and you set that up as an anthology series where you sort of have different crews doing all these different crazy jobs, but you have certain characters, certain specialists that sort of overlap in between stories. So it's all connected in a way. So you get a sense of, this criminal ecosystem at play and you sort of get the people behind like night manager, little drummer girl money heist mm. uh, to, to do it. And I think the twist here that will make it a little more compelling is that you would play up the digital information rights angle that the comic doesn't mm-hmm. touch on at all. Yeah. 
And that mm-hmm. is something that's happening right now. Like our rights to our personal information to protect it are being eroded every day on the internet. Also that we give it away freely for free stuff like Google, yeah. Gmail and stuff like that. How those trends today will play into the future in sort of this like information dystopia that is coming. Well, that already was an issue too with the Amazon like physical store in Seattle where originally it was going to be cashless where it's like you're creating an underclass where people who don't have access to credit or a bank account are literally not going to be able to buy goods in your store, which they eventually, I believe, back down on. But yeah, love it. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now! That little jingle means it is time for the canon submitting this week, Tara Ariano. Hi. Back when we had our beloved Joe Reed on the podcast to talk about the first season of The Other Two, Comedy Central's new sitcom, we agreed that for a freshman season, it was remarkably assured, pleasingly grounded, and extremely funny. With all that in mind, I wanted to highlight what I feel is the strongest episode of this first season, episode three, Chase Gets a Girlfriend. Here's what I think makes it canon material. Number one, it finds new comedic angles on Chase's fame. Writing a new TV show typically works like this. Your pilot establishes your premise and your second episode basically retells the pilot. So it was with the other two. We meet barely functional twins, Brooke and Carrie, as they stumble through life in New York, who are soon shocked to learn their tween brother Chase has become a legit pop star and that both he and their mother, Pat, are also moving to Manhattan. In the second episode, Chase's manager, Streeter, gets Chase invited to a movie premiere which Brooke and Carrie also attend in their new roles as part-time fame barnacles. Though Chase is a secondary character on the show, the various new experiences that are the consequences of his fame provide new settings for Brooke and Carrie's misadventures. Brooke fakes a red carpet moment to make her old Midwest friends jealous before discovering that her new influencer pal is actually a preteen. Chase, uh, sorry, Carrie sneaks off to record himself acting straight for a commercial audition because he's a lot more insecure than one of the party's cater waiters. Chase Gets a Girlfriend shows that Chase's new status is making things weird even at home. 
not his home exactly, Pat and Chase are going to be living in Justin Theroux's apartment because he's out of town and Streeter also manages him for music. The episode's writers, Lucia Aniello and Paul W. Downs, also uh, formerly writers on Broad City, pepper jokes about the place throughout the episode. Justin has a huge portrait of himself in the living room. What appears to be a motorcycle is somehow actually a toilet. One room is a chapel with a lowercase T for through behind the pulpit because Justin believes in himself. Pat ends up sleeping on a lounge chair beside the indoor pool because the house has three saunas, but only one bedroom. Rook beds down in a closet filled with dozens of pairs of black shoes and boots in the same three styles. Heightening the pretensions of Justin's interior design choices are Pat's attempts to make it feel homey, like putting a tiny pillow embroidered with I'd give up chocolate, but I'm no quitter on one of Justin's forbidding concrete chairs. Obviously, I can't clip these for my presentation because they're visual jokes, but they're good jokes. The other new development for Chase we learned from Shuli, a publicist at his record label, is that he's getting a girlfriend. To be clear, he's being assigned a girlfriend for a lot of very sound business reasons. Clip one. So as you may know, we at Principal Records also work with Yandani. Oh my God, I love Yandani. She's such a hot, badass feminist. She reminds me of me. Yeah, and I thought, it was my idea, since Yandani and Chase uh, have a new album coming out in the next couple of months, that uh, they could collaborate. Oh, cool. On a relationship, so they start dating tonight. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, 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 she's standing by the video conference. Oh, you're going to love her. She has 8 million followers. The show's observations about both a rich idiot's home decor and about the strategy of combining two social media followings to effectuate a fame multiplier in an episode, by the way, in which we don't hear either young stars music at all, demonstrate how much producers have thought through the premise of the series. We'll see through the rest of the season how carefully they explore every aspect of Chase's absurd journey. Number two, it shows how Chase's fame is affecting the whole family. The strategic partnership with Yendani is not yet a done deal, as Shuli goes on to explain. She has promised Yendani that she is going to vet the whole family first and has brought with her an alarmingly large binder full of Dubeck oppo research. Everyone heads off to the chapel except Chase because some of what Shuli has uncovered is not appropriate for him to hear. At the pulpit, Shuli opens the binder and says she wants to start with Carrie, who, it turns out, is eager to confess in clip two. Great. Yes, I've done a lot of bad things. Um... When I was 11 years old, I would get boners in church because one of the altar boys was super hot, so I would just tuck my dick up into my belt during communion. Carrie. I know which altar boy. And when I was in the eighth grade, uh, we took a class trip to Waterworld, and I purposefully rode the log plume with my friend Kevin's dad so I could buy the picture afterwards and masturbate to it. Oh, honey, did you hear he died? I did. <laughs> and when I was 23, I worked at a hotel, and Christopher Maloney stayed there, and one day he went out to the Pool, so I snuck into his room and smelled his underwear. But then he returned to a different room, so I don't know whose underwear I smelled. Oh my God. Care, let me cut to the chase. Ooh, we should trademark that, my God. I meant things I could find online. You just described three private, sad moments. How would I find those things? Oh, then I'm just kidding. What you can't see during the Maloney story is Brooke nodding knowingly as Carrie tells it because she's clearly heard this story before and it's one of her faves. You would think from this moment that Helena York and Drew Tarver, who plays Carrie, had been comedy partners for years, but they met on this production and are just that good, playing siblings who love each other but also love to revel in each other's fuck-ups. 
Pat also volunteers a story about making a mean comment on a friend's duck photo that she regretted so much. Pat not only unfriended her, but changed churches to avoid her. And again, York's shocked slash delighted reaction to the scandalous announcement is gorgeous. But this hasn't turned up in Shuli's background check either. The entire binder, it turns out, is just about Brooke, who is sure there must be some mistake, as she says in clip three. Now I'm a social justice warrior. People on Twitter always tell me I'm a classic white feminist. That's not good. And we deleted that account. What? Well, I also deleted photos of you from Halloween as Terry Schiavo. Okay, I went as Terry Schiavo before, and then I happened to pass out at the party. Okay, shall I continue? Well, if you have anything else. Let's talk about your live journal. Oh, no. It turns out there isn't an online platform Brooke is capable of using without disgracing herself. Clip four. What could I possibly have done wrong on Venmo? Every time you pay Carrie for anything, you write that as for slamming that puss. Brooke. Okay. Yes, I did choose not to clip the part where Shuli reads Brooke for her addiction to tweeting an R word no longer used in polite society. The joke is that Brooke is gross for using it. The butt of the joke is her, but it's still hard to hear, even for a character we are not being encouraged to like very much. That said, the rest of the sequence is very well-crafted, well-acted, and hilarious. Number three, new lows for the three elder Dubex help us to get to know them. As has already been established in the first two episodes of the series, Brooke and Carrie are not doing great in life. Prior to the meeting with Shuli, Carrie had started his day by walking in on his straight-ish roommate, Matt, furiously and shamelessly jerking off, then going on to star in a play that mostly requires him to pretend to sleep. When Matt later accepts Carrie's invitation for drinks, Carrie orders his friend and waiter colleague, Curtis, the only patron in the audience, to leave so that they can just bag the play, but then finds out Matt has turned their drinks into a bro hang with all his boring straight buddies. Matt continues to mix his messages by finding Carrie in the bathroom and aggressively kissing him, then suggesting they get out of there and inviting his dudes back to their place. It's here that we see how desperate Carrie is to comply with Shuli's order that he have sex. He throws himself down a flight of stairs to force Matt to get rid of the other guys so he can look after Carrie. As a nurse, Matt is about a C minus clip five. Weird. I am so hard right now. Oh, whoa, whoa. Don't want to hurt your lip. But I guess you could, uh... <clears throat> and indeed, Carrie is not too injured to give a wristy. Over to his twin. Brooke isn't as alarmed as any of us might be to learn that she's filled the internet with several hundred pages worth of shit posts. But when Shuli clears the Dubex for a video conference with Yendani, she immediately gets herself canceled. Clip six. Okay, kids, so tonight we'll start off with Instagram Live, and then tomorrow I have you on the red carpet for the Hot 97 Summer Jam. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love Summer Jam. Okay, one year I got so drunk, and I went home with this guy, but I was dating somebody else, and so I waited until he was asleep to kiss him. That way it wasn't cheating. <laughs> That's sexual assault. Oh, oh, no, no, you're confused. I'm a girl, and he just wasn't awake, and I kissed him, so... Yeah, no, that's sexual assault. Streeter mutes the call so he can strategize about whom he has to suck or fuck to get and destroy the pictures of Brooke's molestation. When she says there are none and that nobody knows, Shuli and Streeter laugh with relief, but Brooke is shook and immediately departs to make amends. 
Her victim, we learn, is her ex-boyfriend, Lance. But when she tells him about the liberties she took, he's unconcerned. Clip seven. Dope. No, Lance. Not dope. You didn't give consent. It's all good. I would have. Lance, focus, okay? I'm sorry. I assaulted you. That is not okay. And more importantly, it's just not who I am. Yeah, it is. Come on, you do crazy shit like this all the time. This is classic Brooke. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh. This language echoes a charge Carrie had made earlier when he wasn't the only one dozing at the theater. Sleeping through a play? Classic Brooke. She could dismiss it when it was only her brother saying so, but now she's on a mission of self-redemption. Clip eight. Okay, what else? What else is classic Brooke? Um, she's hot. She's cool. Yes, classic Brooke. Uh, she's fun. She loves to party. You know, in moderation, sure. Classic Brooke. She has always got deodorant on the outside of her clothing. No, that is not classic Brooke. Next. Doesn't brush her teeth. Well, no, not at night. I want to go to sleep. Next. She lies for fun. She steals from Starbucks. She never drinks water. She falls asleep during play. Okay, no, 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 no. I don't know. I, I want to stop. Let's just stop. After hearing how single life has helped Lance focus on his career and move forward in life, Brooke announces that it's the same for her. Though she had greeted Pat's earlier suggestion that Brooke become Chase's assistant with a hearty fuck no, now she tells Lance that actually she's just taken a job as an assistant to a big music star and that working all the time and being responsible is what will now be known as classic Brooke. As Brooke reclines on a poof in Justin's closet and Carrie stares at the ceiling jerking off Matt, we get an echo of the cold open shot that had them both sleeping in slip split screen. Now, separately, Carrie and Brooke both assure themselves, lip nine. This is good. I like this. Looking back on the chapel scene, we can see how it served as a microcosm for each twin's plot line through the rest of the episode. Light on story, but rich with character development. And around the edges of Shuli's time with the Dubex, we also start to see how Chase's fame is changing his mother, because it seems like his siblings have more care for his well-being than Pat does. Clip 10. Oh, Chasey, your first girlfriend. Ew, mom, no. No, gate, brother. This is how kids meet these days. They work at the same label and then they fall in love. Yeah, get with the times, dork. <laughs> dork. No, mom, this is crazy, okay? That's a full-on fake relationship. When is Matt going to text me back? Okay, sure, this is mostly a setup for a joke about Carrie's lack of self-awareness, but Pat's lack of concern is evident again when Brooke gets back to Justin's that night. Clip 11. Oh, how was Chase's big date? They broke up. Oh. And Donnie got an offer to start dating Millie Bobby Brown tomorrow. What about Chase? He's going to wear glasses. Shuli's calling it Glasses Saturday. No, I mean, is he okay? Oh, I'm sure he's fine. That's just how the kids date these days. Okay. Pat has already told us earlier that all of Chase's new opportunities are also turning this into Pat's year of yes, to which she is very committed. Clip 12. So I guess I'll find a place to sleep. I know, I have to get some shut-eye too. I have so many meetings this week. With who? Oh, anyone who wants one. The results of Pat's various meetings with anyone who wants one will be revealed over the rest of the season and become part of Chase's unfolding fame story. But it wasn't clear to me until the end of the season how early and delicately the seeds for Pat's story of mostly benign neglect had been planted. Okay, kind of a dark note to close on, so I'll just reiterate. The other two is not just incredibly funny in its very specific portrayal of fame in 2019. It's also incredibly smart and well-built. Chase Gets a Girlfriend is a very early exemplar of what made the show's first season so great, but I hope you will concur with my an argument for why it's one that belongs in the canon.
John should go first because John adores the show like it's a family member. <laughs> uh, that is true. I picked this off the list because I cannot possibly <laughs> ignore anything the other two. It's my favorite comedy since Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, a show that I've rewatched multiple, multiple times. Um, and kind of what I love about it is like in the aughts, you had your, you know, your your straight insult comedies like Always Sunny and Archer and Arrested Development. This is something a little bit different to me. Like, yes, the characters can be horrible sometimes, but that horribleness is not usually pointed at each other. And the family really does love each other. And I think it's a... A higher degree of difficulty. Um, speaking of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Drew Tarver just showed up there a couple weeks ago. I almost lost my shit, but anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's had a recurring character on that show for a while. Um, so obviously Tara you know, does a fantastic job of listing all the reasons why this is canon worthy. But, uh, you know, with a show that is so good, you do run into that 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 question. Well, what what elevates this above everything else, especially in a 10 episode season? Um, to me, again, I agree with it. The. Uh, it is incredibly representative of the culture that Chase is now a part of. Um, it's an A-plus intro into Shuli, who's one of the best characters. Uh, the entire scene in the chapel of sorts <laughs> is so funny. And the live journal line has to be like one of my top three of the season and probably experi- experientially the one that hits me the, the, <laughs> the, the funniest, you know, having been on the Internet uh, so much when when live journal was really at its at its peak. Um, the push pull of Carrie's uh, straight with a question mark relation roommate uh, is another thing that's all too real for gay men of a wide range of ages, I would say. Um, but I think the 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 one thing that Tara didn't mention that really marks this as canon worthy for me is uh, some of the scene in the pool that we didn't at the pool that we didn't hear between uh, Brooke and Pat. Uh, Watching it with the benefit of knowing what the family trauma is uh, mm-hmm. makes it seem way deeper. There's a lot left unsaid, but I think like it's there. Um, and the scene afterward where Brooke kisses Chase, the sleeping Chase goodnight uh, is like inexpressibly dear to me and makes me love. You know, I think this episode probably makes Brooke my favorite character. And that's that that doesn't change over the over the season. Um, so for all the reasons Tara said, plus plus those few things, um, I think it's canon-worthy. There's not a whole lot left to say. Um, I will just add that I love Lance, Lance very much great. and would buy his shoe with the change drawer. <laughs> um, that is a legit good idea. And he, uh, plus what John was saying about the fact that this is like, a you know, the comedy, it's very funny and it's scathing, but... It has actually that high maintenance feeling about it to me in that there is a there is a sadness to it also um, or just like occasionally it just stops and like lets its characters be d- sad and like disappointed um, and just tired of struggling. And it, it really does get at a certain shittiness of being of struggling in New York city in your twenties and uh, the way that it's written and acted both get at that. And the, the last shot at the end is, you know, it like there's a desperation to it that I think makes the, the funniness uh, like blacker, but also 
funnier. I don't know really how to explain what I'm talking about, but that that contrast makes it um, like that it's it's loving towards its characters and that they are loving towards each other, even though they're just like human idiots like anyone else is what I really like about this show. Um, and also Lance and also just the sense I get that any everyone they mentioned, like the famous people they mentioned by name, probably knew that they were being mentioned and were <laughs> fine with it. Oh, I feel like Christopher Deborah. Maloney would find this hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, Thoreau, who knows? Um, I, I did love the the shoe closet, though. I was like, I'll sleep in there. This is good. I mean, Thoreau is a is like wet hot American summer adjacent, so I think he would be on board. With yeah, this. I'm I'm absolutely sure that they were like, so is this cool? And he's like, yes. Here's some yeah. weird actor things I do that you can totally yeah. make fun of. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're like, this had me like a minute and a half into the episode when um he's like d- doing his play and sleeping, and then you hear not just the right volume the toilet flushing because it's right next to the stage and then she's creeping around out of the wings and trying to take a picture of him and then she's like, taking a picture with an ipad because she's a mom like uh, all oh, of the details of that are God, perfect. I so perfect like how many of those plays have we suffered through like on all sides of it <laughs> thank you all for coming to the famous ghost monologues um, <laughs> yeah it was i mean it's just so sharply observed but also um just very human in this this way that makes it a very lovable show even when you're like crying laughing at this guy being like something bit me and agreeing to flee so that he can go on a date. it's <laughs> it's really good dave cole I want to add two just random notes. One, if you recognize uh, Justin Throw's house, it's because it was also in Luke Cage. It was the mob <laughs> woman's house in Luke Cage. And Mr. Robot, I think it was in the season two premiere. Oh, yeah, it was totally in Mr. Robot. Also, I think Justin Throw would be pretty happy with an idea that he had a motorcycle that was also a toilet. Yep. <laughs> Who among us? I think you're setting yourself up for a high level of difficulty when you do this, which is a show that just came out. We're only one season in. The show is very strong. The episodes are very even, and you're trying to figure out which one to do for the canon. I don't disagree with anything you said, and this is really just the sum of everything I'm going to say. If you're going to put one episode up from this season as the best of the season, I have to go two more episodes in. And it's an episode called Chase Gets the Gaze, and that is the episode where Chase puts out a song about his brother and... There is sort of an up and down, back and forth. He has a reaction to it. He's he's famous. And then the gays turn against the song because it's like so 1995. And th- that's <laughs> that episode. I think that episode is stronger, funnier. It hits a lot of the same notes as this one. You know, more progression of the father, what happened to the father storyline. And for me, that's probably the better bet this soon into the series. I think the... Uh, the mathematics of how I would choose a canon entry change quite a bit uh, without the benefit of hindsight. So mm. I would just go, if I had one episode to give to you from this first season, which one would I give? And it would be that one. This episode that you presented is really funny. It is good as like all episodes are, but I got to give the edge to episode four. Of this. So. That, yeah, right. That's the next episode after this one, not two after. Yeah. The AV club said it's no moonlight. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so with that, let's put it to the official vote. John Ramos? Um, I love the episode you mentioned as well, but I am still voting yay. Sarah D. Bunting? 
I'm voting yes. All right. I'm going to say uh, marginal no for those reasons, but it doesn't matter because. The other two, season one, episode three, Chase gets a girlfriend. You are hereby inducted into the extra. A great cannon. Americans love a winner. Yeah. And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. It's time for the winner and the loser of the week. Who has our winner? Um, I have the winner and I'm going to modify it slightly from what's in our rundown doc and say Shannon Doherty because A, she signed onto the Beverly Hills 90210 revival thing, which thank, thank God. God. Um, I just speak for a grateful nation. And also she has this little like flip hairdo right now that is super cute. It looks so good on her. I want it. I have attempted it. It won't work. So Shannon, uh, avenge me. <laughs> and loser like. Oh, bunch of Game of Thrones people. First, Brian Cogman. He is the writer of last week's episode of Game of Thrones, the second episode, not the third. Um, he had a George R.R. R. Martin endorsed Game of Thrones spinoff prequel series that was in the works, and now it is dead at HBO. There is another Game of Thrones spinoff that is in production now. That's the one that Naomi Watts is in. Don't worry, everybody. That one is still happening. Brian Cogman's, however, is not sad. But they were like floating around five at one point. So just like mathematically, there was a slim chance his was going to get in. (laughs) Like they're probably coming up with five or ten new ones a day. Like this is going to be milked for decades to come, I'm sure. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Fans, however, are pissed that it was too dark to see anything in The Long Night, the latest episode of the show to air. It was real dark. I watched it. I have now jumped on the Game of Thrones bandwagon now that the show is ending and have so many uninformed opinions about it. So hit me up <laughs> if you're interested in those. But yeah, it was uh, it was super dark. And the cinematographer. Well, go ahead. About a year ago, I made this big complaint about when people have a lot of very bright blues. A lot of TVs don't have the color gamut to handle it. You know, like if you have a um, a crime scene and there's cop cars and they're, you know, doing their blue and red lights flashing. When the blues yeah. appear, they have a certain saturation that is very not in keeping with reality. And it pops off the screen as if it was like computer generated. Like that, I think this episode had a problem where they're not considering how people are watching it. Yes. Those muddy, dark scenes showed so poorly with digital compression. Like we have direct TV and it compresses it a bit like all streams do. But like those scenes where the spoiler alert, the Dothraki horde race to the horizon to fight unseen white walkers and whatnot like instead of seeing this nice gradation from like dark gray to middle gray you see three bands of distinct gray because the compression can't you know hack it right and so you see all these giant blocks of color moving around it just makes it a mess and i just think like when you make a show like this especially such like a blockbuster you know of the moment important show on tv right now it's the biggest thing going like think about where it's going to end up yeah end of rant I'm not a crackpot. Well, I mean, granted, we were, we were not watching it on our newest television. Like, maybe it would have looked better if no. we watched in the living room versus in... It would have been a clearer, muddier banding. That's all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people were complaining about that, that. And I guess it looked slightly better on HBO. But to our third loser, HBO Go also, like, went, went down because so many people were trying to watch it. And then, like, people that could get into it, it was, like, the, the quality was like went down from the highest because so many people were on it. So 
Anyway, so they interviewed someone, I think Wired interviewed the cinematographer of the episode, Fabian Wagner, who was who was very defensive about it and was like, I know it was fine because I I lit it. And it's like, dude, you you probably edited this on the highest quality monitor you possibly could get in like a the darkest room yep. in the universe <laughs> like you were in a black hole where no nothing could escape like you have to think about you're not making this for the big screen you're making this for TVs some people's TVs are shitty and if your answer is like well they have to upgrade their hardware no you need to be aware of what medium you're creating this show for and it's not just uh, TVs there's a lot of people watching yeah. laptops and yeah. iPads it's like even smaller yes. you know yeah Anyway, uh, nevertheless, the show did have series high ratings, as did the excellent Barry that we were talking about earlier. So, you know, mixed winners and losers there. But anyway, Game of Thrones people is collectively the loser. Uh, speaking about co- being collectively the loser, do you know what time it is? <laughs> Game time? Sure. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to Game Time. This is the second Game Time of the season. Season scores, value guess, one point. Sarah, zilch, Tara, zilch. Today, we are playing another round of One Letter Off from Raymond Chen. Raymond claims that this is the last of his One Letter Off series. So we now formally bequeath him the title of Lettermonger. (laughs) For his trouble, Raymond the Lettermonger earns himself one extra credit, redeemable for a topic of his choosing, answerable by us. Here's how it works. We played it before, but running through it again. When a letter in an existing TV show changes, it gives birth to a new but somewhat familiar show. I'm going to read you a description of such a changed show, and you give me the new title for a point. For example, when changing one letter. A house mother at a boarding school guides her girls through adolescence while feeding them tons and tons of beans. What's that show? The f- farts, the of farts of life. <laughs> the farts of life. We have three rounds. In round one, we'll add a letter to an existing show. In round two, we'll remove a letter from an existing show. And in round three, we'll change one letter, like in the example there gotcha. for farts of life. Okay. All right, Tara, can you please give the steel mill situation after I ask Sarah this very important question? Sarah D. Bunting, did you happen to listen to last week's Game Time makeup episode yet? No, I didn't. Oh, okay, well, the stakes of the game were this. The winner of the game, which ended up being Carrie, got to bequeath, see if I can do it by memory, three steel mills, 15 day points, and <laughs> one extravaganza gong to a player of her choice. And wow. her choice was you. Yay! Ooh, thanks, Carrie. What's an extravaganza gong? What is it? I don't know. Can't use it today, but in the future, you might want to use it, and uh, who knows what's going to happen. So, Tara, look let's have that. the updated steel mill situation, please. All right. Well, so even though we, we played a game time last week where some things were used, but I reset everything back to where they were. So now valued guests have one steel meal. I have one steel meal. Sarah, thanks to Carrie, has six steel meals. Oh, oh man. All right. 30 questions. Three rounds, one letter off. Let's throw it to Picky to see who is going to play first. We will start with Sarah. All right, Sarah, John, Tara is our order. Are we ready to play one letter off? Yes. Yes. All right, Sarah D. Bunting, round one, adding a letter. Here's the show description. Hippie parents find ways to bond with their daughters and conservative son despite generational divide over fork usage. What? 
Oh, uh, family times. Family times. <laughs> Good for one point. There are no hints in this game. John Ramos. A nurse finds herself transported back to 18th century Scotland, where she's always competing with others in the clan to clean the most dirty kilts. Always competing with others in the clan to clean the most dirty kilts. Any idea? Steel okay. meal. Steel meal from Sarah. Outlander. 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 Gotta do it. Tara Ariano. Mm-hmm. A Harvard philosophy professor reluctantly moves back to Ohio to teach good students about the ways of Chachi. AP Bayo. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Back to Sarah Bunting. Detectives on both sides of the Swedish-Danish border work together to track down a serial killer. Spoiler alert! It's a whole <laughs> Hollywood family of serial killers, and they pick the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. <laughs> the bridges? Correct. All right, this is for John Ramos. Got a little bit of a uh, song to this one. I'm not going to sing it very well. Exciting and new. Come aboard. We're expecting you. Smoke this type of cigarette. Life's stinkiest reward. Let it blow. It blows back to you. <laughs> the clove boat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I do want to say I did this one. I hope it makes sense. I'm very proud of it. Or Tara. Uh oh. Okay. A large Sacramento family wants to expand along the X and Y axis, but ultimately finds contentment along the Z. Sacramento? Oh, no. A large Sacramento family wants to expand along the X and Y axes, but ultimately finds contentment along the Z. Oh. Brothers and Seinsters? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know the show, I think. All right. Uh, that was Height is Enough. Oh. oh, I knew it was eight is enough, but I couldn't figure out what the, what the trick was. I was like, asymptotes are enough? I don't, I don't. <laughs> All right. Good this one, is Dave. Everybody's last question of round one coming at you. Or Sarah. Fonzie and the gang hang out at Arnold's drive-in, but the jukebox only plays the banana boat song. The jukebox only plays the banana boat? So oh god ha happy deos <laughs> John Ramos in this reality show people bring their personal valuables to a talking shrimp in order to secure a loan <laughs> I'm sorry could you say it one more time yeah <laughs> okay you probably heard it right but here we go in this <laughs> reality show People bring their personal valuables to a talking shrimp in order to secure a loan. <laughs> prawn shop. <laughs> what? Prawn stars. Oh, prawn oh. stars. Damn it. All right. The last question shrimp. around one before our first score break and equalizer challenge zone for Tara. Mm -hmm. In the future. It's <laughs> a good one for Tara. In the future, yeah. the world is controlled by television networks and a stuttering computer-generated TV host 
wants the proletariat to revolt and take control of the means of production. Mark's headroom. Mark's headroom. <laughs> that is a good one for Tara. And let's, let's have a little shout out here for our appropriate Scorbic. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, Sarah is dominating this game with four points. I have two. John has one. All right, John. That means you are in. The Grossworth Ecoledger Challenge Zone. Here we go. Starting you off with classics. What sitcom star had a diet of hay and sweet tea? <laughs> um, I hope it's Mr. Ed. Nice. Sitcoms. What 1990 sitcom transplants a Philadelphia rapper to the West Coast? Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <gasps> Drama. What was the first crime show to have two females as its stars? Cagney and Lacey. There's your three. Yeah, you did it. That's two points. If you get the next three, you get another two points on top of that. Oh, shit. What did Merv Griffin call the Super Bowl of game shows? Super Bowl of game shows. Jeopardy? You're very close. Mm. Super Jeopardy. Oh. Ah. Okay. <laughs> All right, fair All enough. All right, but that's but. good. You got your two points. So updating the scores, please, Tara. Yes. Uh, this has changed everything. Now I have two points. John has three points. Sarah has four points. All right. Ooh. Still a close game. This is round two in which we will remove one letter. All right. Sarah yep. Debunting. Aspiring singers from around the country compete for a recording contract and a marriage license with the winner reciting their vows on live television. American, I do. Oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. John Ramos. Uh-huh. A fun-loving, mustachioed private investigator constantly excuses himself to go take a long leak. <laughs> Did you say fun-loving? Yep. Fun-loving? Okay. Um, fun-loving mustachioed. Mustachioed, yeah. Oh, boy. Mm, I don't know. That is Magnum P. (laughs) Tari Ariano. Yes. Yet another medical drama set in the Windy City, but this time the staff dress in poodle skirts and dance the jitterbug. Chicago Hop. I'd watch that. Back to Sarah. Android hosts cater to their guests' wildest frontier fantasies, but they keep short-circuiting because it's always raining. Wet world? <laughs> Ew. <laughs> hey, that could have that could have went way worse with Westworld yes, and Wet World. It, so I let's agree. just so let's true. just be happy with what we got. Mm-hmm. John Ramos. Two single men disguise themselves as women in order to live in an all-female hotel where they experiment with dynamite. Um, damn, I know the show. But <laughs> subtracting a letter, don't forget. Yeah, subtracting a letter. So, what do you think the show is? Oh, talking out might help. Um, Boom Buddies. Got Boom it. Buddies from Booze and Buddies. Correct. <laughs> Tara, a late addition to the game by Raymond, a frontier town sheriff and stepfather gets access to an infinite supply of Viagra. 
Oh, Dad would. Oh. <laughs> yeah, what world not looking so bad now, is it? Well, no. Dadwood could be in what world? <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting, last question of round two. For you. A single mom working at Mel's Diner struggles to rid her hair of insect parasites. Lice? <laughs> Liss? All right, this is now question 17. Spread eagle. Spread eagle. John Ramos, contestants play a variety of shopping games where they have to choose between Basmati, Calrose, or Jasmine. <laughs> the rice is right. The rice is right. <laughs> All right, last question of round two for Tara. A British comedy duo set every sketch in the bathroom, further complicating number wang. P show. <laughs> Not a sketch show. Damn it! We're looking for that Mitchell and Webb Lou. Mitchell and oh. <laughs> All right, that is round two. Let's hear the scores, please, start. Fell right into that trap. Okay, well, uh, Sarah, in a, comfortably in the lead with seven points. John has five. I have four. All right, oh. that means, Sarah, uh, no, Tara, you are in. A little thing we call the Grossworth Equalizer Challenge Zone. Good luck, Tara. Okay. Good luck, Classics is your first category. Here's your question. Yep. What was the lowest value question on You Bet Your Life? One dollar. Ten dollars. Ten dollars. Sitcoms. Who was the main nemesis of Navy Captain Wallace Bimington in a 60s sitcom? Um. Mikhail? Yes, correct. Wow. Okay. We'll accept that. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Drama. Mm -hmm. What British family lived upstairs at 165 Eaton Place? Oh, damn it. Uh, I don't know. The Bellamies. Yeah. Three questions left to get two right. Okay. Kids and games. What animated lion's favorite utterance was heaventh to Murgatroyd? Lion. What animated lion's favorite utterance was heaventh's? To Murgatroyd. Snagglepuss? Correct. I okay. think we've gotten that question before, weirdly. We, <laughs> we were talking about the comic adaptation a couple weeks ago with the. Yes, like, that's oh, right. right. That's right. Yes. I remember the Murgatroyd. <laughs> Stars. Answer will be a celebrity. Who is the mm -hmm. first black actor to play the leading role in a number one rated TV series? Uh. Uh. LeVar Burton. Bill Cosby, I suspect for oh, I Spy. Right. All right, you need this wild card. Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, this is oh, going to no. be a tough one for you. <laughs> no, it's not. What British comedy show saw John Cleese walk into a pet shop with a dead parrot and say, "I wish to register a complaint"? Oh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And there Yay! are your two points. Yay! So with that, let's hear the updated scores, please, Star. Okay, it's closer now. John has five points. I have six points. Sarah still has seven points. And everybody has four questions left. So anybody no can, more equalizers. No more equalizers. Sarah D. Bunting, we're changing a letter now. Okay. Here's your show description. A panel of potential investors make snide remarks about business proposals. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Stark Tank. <laughs> Correct. John Ramos. 
the soft-spoken host puts on his sneakers and cardigan and teaches valuable lessons to preschoolers, tots, youngsters, infants, toddlers, and rugrats. Um. The soft-spoken host puts on his sneakers and cardigan and teaches valuable life lessons to preschoolers, tots, youngsters, infants, toddlers, and rugrats. This one's a thinker. Yeah, I think I know the show, but... Got an answer you want to throw out there? Uh, no. I don't know what letter to, letter to change. But... No. Lister Rogers? It's, it's gotta be Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but... Nope. Mr. Rogets' Neighborhood. Oh, oh right. Preschoolers, tots, yeah. youngsters, <laughs> infants, toddlers, and rugrats. Could not that's, get there. That's nice really, question. Uh, yeah, that's, that's very a, clever. That's a, that's a thinksaurus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tara... Yep. The staff at an evacuation hospital during the Vietnam War drink beer and soda too quickly. China Belch. <laughs> Back to Sarah. The investigation into the disappearance of a young boy leads to the discovery of top secret government experiments, supernatural forces, and exotic skimpy underwear. The disappearance of a young boy. I'm sorry, can you read it again? Nah. (laughs) The investigation into the disappearance of a young boy leads to the discovery of top secret government experiments, supernatural forces, and exotic skimpy underwear. Exotic skimpy underwear. Uh... All right. Anybody want to take that one? No. All right. That was Stranger Thongs. Oh, (laughs) I knew it had to be thong, but I couldn't get the rest of it. Damn it. All right. Back to John. A group of young Italian-American stereotypes spend the summer together at a vacation house where they look for overpriced stocks on the financial markets. Jersey short. (laughs) Good one, John. Nicely done, picky. Back to Tara. An outspoken working class man reveals his many prejudices, especially after his daughter marries a cat eating alien from another show. (laughs) Alf in the family. (laughs) All right, Sarah, this is your second to last question. Graceful mounds of sand sculpted by gentle winds are rudely disturbed by a Dodge Charger that loves to jump over them while playing Dixie. The dunes of Hazard. <laughs> <laughs> to John, don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. Eh, maybe you would because he turns into a giant piece of delicious cheese. <laughs> um, the Incredible Hunk. Incredible Hunk. <laughs> 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 All right, Tara. The producer of Minneapolis WJM-TV's Evening News moves to Los Angeles to head a newspaper where he grows to superhuman size. Lou Giant. Correct. All right, everybody's got one question, so let's hear the scores, please. Quickly, Tara. Oh, it's so close. John has seven points. Sarah and I are tied with nine points each. All right. The pressure. Here we go. Sarah D. Bunting, here's your last question. 
A former model and wisecracking private investigator team up to run a detective agency with romantically dim lamps and lots of candles. <laughs> oh, mood lighting? Correct. John. Contestants try to identify different varieties of bluefin, albacore, and ahi in the fewest numbers of notes possible. Ahi was what I <laughs> said very quickly. Name that tuna. Name that tuna, <laughs> yes. All right, Tari, you got to get this to keep the game tied. Yep. An A-list actor ditches his large circle of friends and hangers-on to become a positive-thinking life coach Constantly cheering on his clients. Oh, no. Talk it out. It might help. An A-list actor. I mean, I, that part made me think it was the grinder. Encourage. Encourage from Entourage. <laughs> Correct. All right. I think we have a tie at the top, but let's confirm the final scores at regulation. That is true. John has eight points. Sarah and I are tied with 10 points. Each. All right. That means it's tiebreakers for everything. Okay. We are talking about a show in which we're changing a letter still. Changing. Okay. First person to shout out the answer will win. Are we ready? Mm-hmm. No. Hello, it's me, Dracula Blah. <laughs> I'm here to read the final clue. Here we go. People bring their small claims cases to be judged by me, Dracula. Once again, people bring <laughs> their small claims cases to be judged by me, Dracula. The People's Count. The People's oh, Count. Is the that correct? The People's Count. That's <laughs> so good. I can't believe you didn't oh, get that. Oh my Especially God. because we all Amazing. remember that great theme song. Wow. Oh my God. You're going to start. You're going to hear this in the club. Congratulations, Tara. Well done, Tara. Great job, Tara. Well, guys, that is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We boarded CBS's The Red Line with express service to Wishy Washy Station before going around the dial where Tar. I thought I heard the Dracula music still playing in my head. I had to go check it actually wasn't still playing. <laughs> where Tara thought you should leave with Tim Robinson, where John performed some high maintenance and Sarah took a double shot. CG challenges to pitch pulled from the headlines dystopian TV shows before Tara lightened the mood with her successful pitch of the other two's Chase Gets a Girlfriend. We crowned winners and losers of the week, and Tara was the winner of this week's One Letter Off Game Time. Remember, we're listening. I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Tara Ariano, I don't know whose underwear I smelled. Sarah D. Bunting. 
I didn't mean to hit my face. I mean, ow. And John Ramos. Off to update my live journal. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and we'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Great. Well, I guess that's it for the show tonight. Oh, darn. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Wait, what if we did this one just for us? Ew, no. No, Todd. Go home, <laughs> kid. He's 60s old.